0: Welcome to Discover Library and Archives Canada, your history, your documentary heritage. I'm your host, Angèle Alain. Join us as we showcase treasures from our vaults, guide you through our many services, and introduce you to the people who acquire, safeguard, and make known Canada's documentary heritage. The invention of photography in the early 1800s revolutionized the way humans communicate and share information. And while it's hard for us to imagine not having a device with a camera at our side at all times, photography has only recently become available to the masses. In this episode, we explore the evolution of photography using Library and Archives Canada's extensive photographic collection as our guide. Archivist Jill Delaney takes us through the collection and brings to light some of the incredible stories surrounding these iconic images. Hi, Jill. Hi, Angelle. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Can you give us
1: an idea of the scope of Library and Archives Canada's photographic collection? Well, we have a huge collection, yeah. as you know. Uh, we have probably an estimated 30 million photographic items in the collection. So that includes photographic prints, photographic negatives, but also more historic processes like daguerreotypes, ambrotypes, um, autochromes, color transparencies, slides, and then some digital photography as well. Um, Can you
0: tell us a bit about the difference between a daguerreotype and the other ones you mentioned, because I don't
1: know all of them. Well, <laughs> well, I could spend all day talking about course, the different processes. Course, but, but in like a two sentence. But I mean, the main difference really between a daguerreotype and more modern processes right. is that a daguerreotype was a single unique image. So it wasn't like a negative where you could make more, make more from okay. it. Once it was made, that was it. It was unique object. It went into a special case. It became a sort of... Artwork. memory yeah almost almost a bit like a, a piece of art and then if you wanted a copy you made a copy of it as another daguerreotype I so see. that would sometimes happen or or sometimes you would just have to sit there while the daguerreotypist made several which would be a very lengthy process. So So if we have a daguerreotype
0: in our collection, we might have the only, well, we have the only one of that one,
1: unless the person did more. That's right, exactly. So if we have, and and for the most part, it would just be a single daguerreotype that would have been taken. So if we have it in our collection, Mm -hmm. chances are it doesn't exist anywhere else. So for example, we have um, daguerreotypes of Lord Elgin and yeah. his family right. and, um, that were taken in Canada. And then when he came to visit in the 1850s, 1857 or 58, he had a daguerreotype taken here and he took it back to England with him. Okay. And then we purchased it again in the 1990s, I think it came back to Canada. So it's a traveling so daguerreotype. It's a traveling <laughs> daguerreotype. And a lot of daguerreotypes were traveling right. like that. And in fact, um, at the very beginning, it wasn't the daguerreotypes that were, were traveling, it was the daguerreotypists who were traveling. Right. Right? Because the process was invented in 1839 by Daguerre in France, and it spread like wildfire. The news of this amazing thing, you could take a photograph of somebody, was really, really popular. And so um, daguerreotype is set up very quickly. So there were probably daguerreotypes done in Canada in the early 1840s, but we think they were done by Americans who traveled up from, say, New York City or Boston or somewhere, and they would come and they would camp out in, say, Montreal for a week or so. They'd put ads in the newspapers, come and have your likeness taken. And then... It's like caricatures now at the fair. (laughs) Exactly. It is kind of like that. It is kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was expensive too, so... I can imagine. Yeah. And I read recently that some of those daguerreotypes didn't work too well because these early daguerreotypists didn't necessarily know what they were doing. So people would pay a lot of money to have their portrait taken and then you know six months later it would be gone from it. The image would have faded away. So do we do we know which is the oldest daguerreotype we have in our collection? We don't. They're very difficult to actually uh, date because because you, it's not like you can write on the back of a daguerreotype like you would today with a with a modern print or with a digital photograph that, that you know it doesn't get imprinted like it would. So you kind of have to put it in context and try and date it that way. Sometimes you can date it by looking at the person and guessing what their age right. might have been or you can look at the case that the daguerreotypes would would always keep ca- Daguerreotypes were always kept in a case because they were very fragile. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you can date something by the case because they changed over the years. And sometimes you can date it according to what else is around it. Or maybe it was taken for a particular event. Right, and you know when the event was. And you know when the event was. A lot of investigation work involved. Yeah, yeah. We have a daguerreotype, for example, of... um, the site of the old Molson brewery in mm-hmm. Montreal just after it burnt down. It's a very rare daguerreotype because most daguerreotypes are, are portraits, and this was taken outside, so it's a very complicated process, so this is something that's fairly rare. And we can date, date that one because, because yeah. we know from newspaper accounts and from the Molson history, Molson family phone that we have, we can date when the fire happened. Right so we know more or less we know the year that it was taken in at okay. least but most of the earliest photographs in our collections would date from the late mid to late 1840s okay. those would be daguerreotypes and then we also have salted paper prints which are the other really early process what does so that look like it looks like a very grainy print okay so, it, because it was, it was a process, the advantage of a salted paper print was that you could reproduce it because, in fact, you would make, the photographer would make a paper negative first, and then you could make a paper print from that. And that process was invented by a, a Brit, Talbot, who was in, sort of in competition. With daguerre, oh I see. So, um, so that but that process in Canada, we don't really have anything probably before the early to mid 1850s. Okay. But those are still pretty amazing You're images. Right. But they they look the they look very grainy. So I imagine that Lacks photo collection tells the pretty much the history of
0: Canada. Uh, what can we learn about early Canada from looking at these
1: photos in our collection? Well, we can learn. A lot from looking at them and I think um, one of the aspects of photographic history that I like to talk about is that photographs are not just illustrations that go along with text right photographs you can read a photograph and you can learn a lot about the history of Canada in a way by just by having had the photo taken especially in the early years in the eighteen. 18- 50s up to say the 1880s, it was a difficult process. And so somebody was making a very specific choice to take a photograph because it could of something. Yeah. It wasn't like today where you just pull out your smartphone and start clicking away and hoping that something will turn out, and, and then you send it to your friend, ha, huh, look at this, that was hilarious, and then it dies and mm-hmm. you move on, right? Yeah. This, was, this was a huge process to take a photograph. It could take hours. As camera and film
0: technology advanced, as we went along, and photos could be taken in a split
1: second, what sort of opportunities did that open up? Well, it opened up opportunities to kind of capture the moment. And uh, it really opened up the field of photojournalism and documentary photography. And that was that's huge for us at Library and Archives Canada because we collect documentary photography. Mm-hmm. We're not collecting photography as art. We're collecting photography as a document of Canadian right. history and society. So once the cameras became smaller and more portable, once the... The film speed became faster, so you could expose something. You didn't have to stand there for 30 seconds while somebody took your portrait. Once you could kind of do a live action shot, it really fundamentally changed the way that photography was used. So, and and one really good example of that is it's not really it's sort of pre photojournalism, but it's the photographs that we have from Captain James Peters from the um, Battle of Batoche and the Battle of Fish Creek from the Riel Rebellion in 1885, 1886. So Peters was uh, an officer in the British military and he was assigned to go out with Middleton to put down the, the rebellion. Mm-hmm. But he was also an amateur photographer. So he took his camera with him and he had this fairly new type of camera that was actually called a detective camera, <laughs> Because it, because it could take photographs fairly quickly, and it was considered very small because you didn't need a tripod. Now, how small or big are we talking well, about Well, yeah, exactly. It was it was a box you camera. It with two hands. So, <laughs> yeah. It, well, he he slung it over his shoulder, but the camera probably weighed fifteen to twenty pounds. So we're not talking about small. We're as not in talking. Today, no, small. we're not talking about a spy camera. <laughs> <laughs> so, but but. Compared to the technology before that, it was revolutionary, and it also had a system, it had a shutter on it, so you didn't have to just take the lens cap off and wait, and then put the lens cap back on, you just clicked the shutter, and it released, and it also had what was called a a a negative magazine, so it was still using glass plates, but they were fairly small, and it would automatically change the plates for you, so it would move the next... To the film to the next negative, mm-hmm. it, this did the same thing. You could fit about 10 glass plates into, into one of these cameras. But the amazing thing about that camera was that he actually took it into battle with him. And those photographs are considered to be the first battle photographs ever in the world. In the world. In the world. And they are action shots. He was on his horse. Remember, he was an officer, Mm -hmm. so he was leading his men into battle. And he was trying to take photographs at the same time. And he he kept diaries and wrote reports. And he would apologize for the poor quality of these photographs. But he was being shot at by Metis snipers while he was taking these photographs and in his apologizing.
0: And he was apologizing
1: and and saying, Well, I was really worried that I was going to ruin all of the plates because basically because he was worried that a bullet would hit his camera Mm -hmm. and then expose all the plates to light. So those are that's kind of the the beginning of that sort of photograph that can be instantaneous. And of course, journalism picked up on that. Mm-hmm. And as soon as it got to the point where they could really easily um, publish photographs that we see today, photojournalism, in the ni- especially in the 1930s, photojournalism really opened up. And then all of a sudden, you have all of this documentary photography happening around every possible aspect of life demonstrations, um, social events, um, inaugurations, uh, anything you can, crime scenes, all of that sort of thing, accidents, all of those sorts of things start to be be documented in photojournalism. do we we have some of these? We do have some of these, Uh, absolutely. Uh, I think um, we have a little bit from the 1930s, but for me, what, what really comes to mind when I think about the power of that type of photography, where, where you can take a photograph almost instantaneously of something that's happening in the moment, are the photographs that Krin Taconis took took uh, in Holland in the last year of World War II. So Crintakonis was was um, Dutch, and he was a young man during World War II. And at the end of the war, when the, when the Germans realized they were going to lose, they essentially started starving the Dutch. So mm-hmm. it was called the Hunger Winter. And Taconis pretty much took his life in his hands. He took a hidden camera out on the streets and he photographed people who were suffering, suffering really terribly mm-hmm. at that time. And then after the war, Taconis emigrated to Canada and became a professional photographer, a photojournalist, but he brought those photographs with him and so we have those in our collection and they're really moving. And then he became a, a world-renowned documentary photographer and he photographed for uh, different magazines and newspapers, he, he photographed Hutterite communities, he photographed, he went to a school for the deaf in the 1960s and, and he really opened up people's eyes to some of these communities that weren't that well known before. He was the first Canadian photographer who was a member of Magnum which was a photo agency, kind of a photo cooperative that was established by Henri Cartier-Bresson who was the the photographer who kind of invented the term the decisive moment and Hmm. it was an agency you had to be invited to uh, to belong to, so it was a very, it was a great honor for Taconis to uh, to be a member of that agency. Most people are aware of the amazing feats made possible by digital editing tools
0: nowadays, um, but this kind of trickery isn't as new as we think. Can you tell us about some of the early photo manipulations being done?
1: Well, it's really interesting because. I was around when digital photography first came out so and, was there was, I. Yeah, and there was a lot of discussion everywhere uh, about well but people can manipulate right. these images and then maybe they're they're not the truth and but of course photographic historians know that photographers and others have been manipulating photos from the very beginning mm-hmm. so there's a long history there uh, and, and the first most basic way that you can manipulate an image with a photograph or with a camera is that you can crop it and you can frame it and and we all do that every day we take our camera and we and we try we're trying to take a beautiful view over the river and there's an ugly building on the right hand side so we move the camera a little bit or or now with digital imaging you you bring up your photograph on your screen and you say oh well I think I want to focus in on this one particular aspect Mm -hmm. of it, right? So that's the kind of manipulation that goes on. And that can be used, not just to make a photograph more beautiful or attractive, but it can also be used to cut out things that maybe aren't very convenient for the story Mm -hmm. that you're trying to tell. But other ways of uh, doing manipulation also happened in the 19th century. And in fact, um, the Montreal photographer, William Notman was, a master at one of the methods, which was called kind of a, a composite photograph, mm-hmm. and he often did these for um, for fancy dress balls or fancy skating parties or something that would be happening in Montreal or Ottawa. So you would have all of the elite coming to, you know, a fancy dress ball. And um, you couldn't back then, you couldn't just say, okay, everybody pose together over against that wall and we'll take a photograph, right? It was, the exposure was too long and so it would be very difficult to do. So he came up with this very clever way of doing it. He would go and take a photograph of say the ballroom separately with nobody in it mm. and then he would sometimes do a little bit of drawing enhancement in that and then he would basically advertise to all of the people who were attending the ball and he would say come to my studio and I will photograph you in my studio and then I'll paste you into the photograph of the fancy dress ball. It's like the predecessor of the green screen. It is kind of like the predecessor right? of the green screen. Yeah. So Yes. They, they would show up in their fancy dress or their costume, mm-hmm. because there, there were costume balls that were very popular in the 1880s amongst the elite. So they would show up for these photographs. They would each be photographed individually or with you know, their husband or their wife or, or whatever. And then he would take that photograph, he would print it, he would essentially cut it out, then he would paste it on to the, the background with all of the other ones. And, and these, we're talking about large photographs here, there would sometimes be 100 200 people in these photographs depending on how much you paid you would either get closer to the front or further at the back no. so sometimes <laughs> but also you know say if the governor general was attending right. they would right. get at the front obviously yeah. and then and then other people you would you know it'd be kind of like a where's waldo thing right? <laughs> right trying to trying to find where your your head ended up in that image and he would so he would paste them all on and then he would essentially re-photograph that photograph do some touch-up and then sell those to the attendees of the ball so you could buy prints and we do have we've digitized uh some of those fancy dress balls and
0: put them on the website
1: that's right absolutely, absolutely absolutely and we also were lucky enough to acquire several years ago some of the original paste-ups, as they were called, which is the the ones where there was the background and then the, the the individual items were kind of pasted on or the individual portraits were pasted on. And those give us a really good sense of the process and how much touching up was going on with these images, that sort of thing. So, so there's that kind of um, manipulation, but th- that was also used, say, uh, for propaganda purposes. So we have photographs from World War I, where um, specifically from what I've seen specifically is from the Battle of Passchendaele. The battle of Passchendaele, thousands of Canadian soldiers were killed at the Battle of Passchendaele. Mm-hmm. It was a real massacre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and thousands more were, were injured. So it's a very important battle for Canadian military history. Uh, and we had photographers there, Uh, But somebody back in the Canadian propaganda office or whoever, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure who made this decision, apparently decided that what I considered really grim battle scenes, because there was mud everywhere, Passchendaele was famous for mud, because the British and Australians had been fighting there for months, and it was raining, Mm -hmm. and it was just horrid before the Canadians even went in. Decided that the photographs were maybe not quite grim enough; didn't really show what was Just happening to Canadian soldiers. Yeah. So you can see in some of the photograph albums that we have from the World War One uh, collection that they've actually cut out bodies of dead Canadian soldiers from one photograph and moved them into the foreground of another photograph to to make a stronger image. Right. So. So that kind of, and it's, unless you actually compare them side by side, it's Mm -hmm. a bit difficult to really see that that was done. It's, it it can be done very cleverly. Mm -hmm. The other master of manipulation was Josef Karsh. Mm. And I think a lot of people don't realize this, but he often did sandwich negatives for some of his projects. Those are a little bit different than a composite. Okay. So, so I don't, they're not fake photographs, but Karsh was always trying to bring out the best in his subjects and, and lighting was extremely important to the final results that he got for mm-hmm. his photographs. So in the 1950s, for example, he had a, a contract with Maclean's magazine where he traveled across the country and he took photographs. Um, in that that were supposed to typify what happened in that city. So, for example, in Regina, he visited the um, RCMP training center that was there, and this is 1952-53, okay. and um, he attended a, a graduation ceremony there. And there was one, there's one photograph that looks like it's a, a young officer who's just graduating and he's actually in the chapel at the RCMP training center and he's praying I mean this is the 1950s -hmm. right so but Karsh wasn't really happy with the lighting in that chapel so he took us one photograph of the altar Mm -hmm. with his lighting and then he took another photograph of the officer the young graduate with different lighting, specifically on him, and then with the negatives, he he made copy negatives, and then he cut out physically, you know, mm-hmm. with an X-acto knife or or whatever, he cut out the officer, and he cut the space out of the backdrop, and he put them together in in what's called a sandwich negative, and okay, then that's why it's called re-photographed sandwich. it, right? Made a new negative, and then made from that. And you can see in, if you look carefully at those kinds of photographs that Karsh did, those kinds of um, photographs depicting auto workers, for example, or steel workers that he did, or, or this RCMP photograph, if you look carefully, the lighting is not quite right in a way, because it comes from two different sources. So have it doesn't, to go look. It, yeah, it doesn't, it's <laughs> not, it's not It looks, it's very effective, right? Mm -hmm. It's very dramatic and you can understand why he did it. But if you look carefully, sometimes the person's face will be lit from one direction and the background will be lit from a different direction. But photography is art. Yes, for Karsh, it was definitely, I would say, it was definitely an art. He was doing portraits the same way that Rembrandt would have done a portrait. Karsh was doing a portrait, and he was always trying to make the sitter look the best that they could possibly Mm -hmm. look, or make his photograph look the best that they could possibly look. But everybody makes a choice when they take a photograph, whether they realize it or not. Mm -hmm. As soon as they pull out their camera or their smartphone, they're making a choice. Library and Archives Canada
0: holds a vast collection of uh, photographs from Yusuf Karsh. Uh,
1: What kind of material can we find in that collection? You can find almost everything, well I shouldn't say that, you can't find almost everything, but it's a very large collection. So we have almost all of his negatives for his entire career. So he opened his studio in Ottawa in 1932 and we have glass plate negatives, which he would. Was using then, which would have been common to use back then, uh, starting from 1932 and moving forward until he closed his studio in 1992. Wow. So we have all of his negatives. Now, he did cull some negatives when he moved his studio. He moved his studio from Spark Street. To the chateau laurier in ottawa in the in the 1970s and they went through you know as you would during a move they went through and Mm -hmm. so for some for some sittings that nobody had ordered reproductions of for years and years and years a decision was made to call those but all of the photographs of that we all know all of the sort of celebrity photographs the um the photographs of politicians and artists and everything are there and then on top of that we have proofs and we have um uh, archival prints some of which he made specifically for the archives when when the when he donated and sold his collection to us but we also have all of the business records from his studio and those are really fascinating mm-hmm. because there's all kinds of correspondence in there and you can really see how he organized his work and how he managed to get some of these incredible portraits that he got over the years you know he wasn't he didn't just sit back and wait for famous people to come to him famous people did come to him I mean after the Churchill portrait was circulated around the world during the Second World War after 1942 people wanted to be photographed by Karsh but he also went after certain people when he thought that he could sell their portraits to magazines or or make a book mm-hmm. or those sorts of things. And so he, he would organize these tours that he would do to Europe, to London, to Washington, Cuba, all over the place. And, and you can see in his appointment books or his day books or his correspondence that he would set up very specific appointments, rounds of appointments while he was there to, to try and, and, and capture the portraits of some of the leading people of the day. I think that he was quite fascinated by power and you, in his autobiography you do get a sense okay. of that, that he was quite interested in, in trying to kind of capture the sense of power that people had. You know, politicians, musicians, artists, writers, dancers, uh, he, he really was interested in, in those issues so he did go after those sorts of people. He was attracted them. But he it was also a business, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, we shouldn't forget that this was a business. And, and yeah, and he knew that if he did manage to convince Pablo Casal to have his portrait taken, that then he could sell that photograph to a lot of magazines uh, around the world and, and make an income from that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that so that was a big Part of that process now mind you when he first started out he was taking passport photographs he was taking wedding photographs mm-hmm. he was doing all the ordinary things that that struggling photographers do in yeah. order to to make money but and then after a while obviously he didn't really need to do that anymore but there's one really kind of interesting story that happened last year a researcher uh, contacted me because he's writing uh a thesis on um, Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut, the Ray Bradbury the science fiction writer and Kurt Vonnegut the modernist, let's say. Okay. And I said to him, well that's very strange, why are you writing about them? And he explained it to me and it was kind of interesting. But what was most interesting, he said, why I'm contacting you is because I've heard there's a photograph taken by Karsh of Ray Bradbury and Kurt Vonnegut together. together. Huh. And I mean, I had no idea, but I went in and I looked and there it was. And then I thought, well, I'm going to try and figure this out. And, <laughs> and it turned out that they were both in town the same time as Karsh was going to be there. I think it was in probably in New York City that he did that portrait. And uh, they actually had appointments back to back. And Ray Bradbury went in for his appointment, found out that Kurt Vonnegut was coming in next. Was kind of talking with Karsh and said, "Well, I'd like my photograph taken with Kurt Vonnegut." And so there's there's this whole great set of photographs of the of these two amazing American authors, iconic American authors, mm-hmm. but taken together in in a Karsh right. studio. So it, and it just showed the when you look at some of these these booking lists, these appointments, it's just. Famous person after famous person after famous person. It's quite astonishing. And we have those. And we have those. Awesome. Absolutely. And we have correspondence. We have his course Karsh's correspondence with Marshall McLuhan, which was pretty entertaining. I mean it's there's not a lot there. But Karsh kept saying to McLuhan, Well, I'm I'm just an uneducated Armenian immigrant. I wouldn't understand what you're talking about. And McLuhan responded a couple of times, very curtly, of course you would understand. It's it's what you do. The medium is the message, sort of yeah. that kind of, I mean, I'm just paraphrasing, right. but that kind of correspondence going on between, <laughs> between him and Marshall McLuhan. So it's quite fascinating once you get in there. Yeah. There must be some very sophisticated systems involved in
0: the preservation of fragile photos and one-offs, for example. We were talking about what types of facilities does uh, Library and Archives Canada have to
1: safeguard these rare photos? Library and Archives Canada has, really has two main facilities for the storage of our photographs. The first one is the Gatineau Preservation Centre, uh, and there's several vaults at GPC, as we call it, mm-hmm. um, that are specifically designated for the storage of photography. I always think of the cold one that you have to put your winter coat on to get in. That's right, and... and we're not allowed to go in. No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and in fact, yes, the cold vaults, there's two cold vaults and they hold both color photography and color motion picture film. But the reason is um, some color processes are subject to fade or shift color. People have seen they go yellow or they go red over time and Mm -hmm. that's because the chemicals are shifting and it's it's known that if you if you lower the temperature enough you can kind of halt that that progress. So if we have family photos that are starting
0: to go yellow, for example, if we put them in a cold storage, we might be able to stop it?
1: Uh, you might be able to yes you might be able Stabilitis. to slow it down a bit i the, the issue is also there's an issue of humidity okay I right okay. so it's a little more complicated okay. and in fact the way the cold vaults work uh to gpc is that um they're they're kept at about minus 18 Celsius, I think. And you can imagine that if you just stuck a col- colored photo in there that had come from 20, you know, plus 20, the humidity might crystallize and then you'd get all these ice crystals That's all right, over the photographs. Yeah. So there's a series of kind of fridges that you put the photographs in and then they over a period of 24 hours they reduce the temperature slowly to -18 then they take them out of the other side of the fridge and they go into the vault and then if somebody requests those photographs to see a researcher wants to see them then they go through that reverse process so That's very so,
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: And the other main facility we have of course is the new nitrate storage mm-hmm. preservation facility which is an amazing facility and and the reason we have that is um nitrate it's a short form but for nitrate cellulose uh film negatives it also has a tendency to chemically degrade Mm -hmm. over time and it was a popular film it was really the only it was the first film base that there was after glass plate negatives they moved to film so it it really runs from the early 1880s up into the 1950s. So you can imagine that's a huge part of Canadian history that could be lost. Mm-hmm. And so what happens if it's stored at room temperature is it tends to off gas and then the image degrades. It's actually really kind of disgusting. It sort of buckles up and turns yellow and smells a bit like dirty socks. Not and it, it's not, not, you know good. that something bad is happening there. So the nitrate facility specifically stores nitrate at the best temperature to keep it stable and again it, there's a process of removing the negatives warming them up slowly bringing them to to the researchers and uh and the, i mean the other thing about nitrate is that it can because it's releasing gases you you don't want people just breathing that all no. of the time and it's also combustible yeah. so and once nitrate starts to burn It actually produces its own oxygen and so it's almost impossible to put it out so the nitrate facility has been specifically constructed to reduce the chance of fire and or spontaneous combustion which has never really happened with photographic nitrate but has happened with motion Mm -hmm. picture Uh, it's built specifically to control that and to minimize it if something did happen. So it is very sophisticated. It's extremely sophisticated facility, and if if there are ever tours, I encourage people because it's quite fascinating to to see how it was constructed with all of these all of these things in mind. Well, thank you very much for being here today, Jill. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Library and Archives Canada's photographic collection, please visit us online at bac-lac.gc.ca. On our homepage, select Discover the Collection and then click on Photography. On this page, you will find links to multiple online resources about photography, including our portrait portal. Be sure to also consult our blog at thediscoverblog.com to find out how to locate photographic material in our collection. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Angèle Halin, and you've been listening to Discover Library and Archives Canada, where Canadian history, literature, and culture await you. A special thanks to our guest today, Jill Delaney. For more information about our podcast, or if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, please visit us at bac-lac.gc.ca slash podcasts.